Welcome to 2024. On this week's podcast, I'm going to be replaying a syndication webinar that I think will be great for new investors. So for some of you guys who have joined up with our club by going to thewealthelevator.com slash club, make sure you get access to our monthly office hours to ask whatever personal financial questions you have or ask about any of the open offerings. For some of you, if you'd like to get a little bit more granular and academic, talking about syndication deals, due diligence. I also, on the third Saturday of every month, we go through the syndication e-course curriculum. On the weekly newsletter, I'm going to be sending 20 different reports from big institutional investment firms such as Barclays, BlackRock, Fidelity, Morgan Stanley, a whole bunch of others for you guys to keep busy. Well, the rest of us in the Hui are going to be in Las Vegas, January 12th to 13th. There's still some time to get signed up there. Go to thewealthelevator.com slash Vegas. You know, it's good to maybe review some of those reports to get an institutional point of view what's going on out there. 2024 is going to be a big year. We've got a lot of things that are going to be rolling out. So check your emails on that. Make sure you get signed up for our Ask the CPA tax questions on January 9th. Send our team an email for an invite to that. This is the time for you guys to be interviewing CPAs and attorneys out there. Don't wait until March or April when it's tax time to be doing this. Get on this right now. For those of you guys who I'm going to be seeing this next week in Las Vegas, I'm really looking forward to it. I think we've got a fun bunch of people coming, looking down the roster. Very typical of our group. A lot of first-generation, seven-figure net worth folks coming. A lot of you guys have this underdog type of mentality or you haven't made it yet mindset, but a bunch of you guys have multi-million dollars net worth. And hopefully by coming to Las Vegas, we show you guys good a time and it's Las Vegas where everybody lives above their means to some extent. Hopefully by getting in the ethos this next weekend, you get a little bit outside of the scarcity accumulations, squirrel stockpiling their nuts for the winter type of mindset. Or at the very least, have a great memory. As I've you know, finalizing the agenda, the breakout sessions is to create that opportunity for you to really interact with another at one time total stranger out there and also create other memories of the events that we go out throughout the weekend. But anyway, here's the podcast. There's still some time to sign up for Vegas. Shoot us an email, team at thewealthelevator.com, and we'll see you guys there. We're going to start off with a short presentation on syndication 101, but then I take some questions surrounding taxes, bonus depreciation, and then do some due diligence on multifamily value add deals or development. Another option would be to check out some of the coaching calls where we create a timeline and we make all these coaching calls based on where your net worth is. So if you've got a net worth of $1.5 million, start by there and start your work way down the page. And at the end of the day, y'all aren't special snowflakes. It's the same formula applied again and again. And a lot of this is written in my new book, The Wealth Elevator. We're looking for book reviewers. If you guys are want to get on that pre-list, please send us an email. And then the last thing, if you guys want to do a free individual coaching call, where we dive into your situation for at most an hour, please send an email and we'll get you set up. You can change your identity. You don't have to have your camera on. What's really cool is it allows other people to listen to your story, glean from some of the nuances that you'll be talking about. 
And if not, you'll have the recording for yourself in the future to share with your kids when you're dead that how you came along on this journey yourself and what is a syndication. So syndication is just a means of pooling together capital so a bunch of individuals can bring their money together for the down payment and CapEx money. You can syndicate anything. You can syndicate a pizza franchise. You can syndicate buying a piece of land, a real estate development, or a value-add multifamily project, or a venture capital company. The, the word syndication is just a means of pooling together passive investor money. We live in the United States where there's very strong securities laws. So a lot of this has to be done on the up and up through SEC, whereas like other less stringent countries, you know, you can pull together money and there's obviously been a lot of fraud and things like that happen. The SEC has put together uh, a bunch of rules. Um, a lot of it's protecting the little guy. I believe that you know, they put a lot of these laws in place to protect the little guy who's not very sophisticated to go into some of these deals with the wrong people and to invest their life savings in a deal. And that's why the safeguard that I always tell investors, don't invest anything you can't lose. And I kind of use the 5% rule where I don't invest more than 5% to any one project just for diversification's sake. But if you're somebody who has a few rental properties or just one rental property or, or all your money in like your house, for example, I would take that 5% rule to heart, look at your portfolio and see, hey, am I too heavy in one asset or am I too heavy in one geographic area? Because the cool thing about syndication is now you're able to diversify into different projects where the experts are managing your capital using their expertise. And you're able to diversify in different Sunbelt states, Texas, Florida, Arizona, for example, and then also in different projects within those. And then also different asset classes too. So here on this right side, different types of real estate syndicates, or there's more types of deals, right? So you have what's called equity and debt are the two main types of deals. So in equity deals, you have the upside. There's a little bit more risk because you could not make money, right? You could just get return of your capital back or you possibly can lose it because you're lower on the capital stack in common, in common equity position. Whereas on the debt side, you are in a higher capital stack position, be, going to be paid back first, but your upside is likely capped, right? You may only have some greater preferred there. So those are the two first things to look at when you look at a deal. Is it a debt deal or is it an equity deal? So that's on the first level. The second level is what kind of project is it? Is it a value-add deal? Is it a development deal? Is it more of an income-focused yield type of deal? That's what is going on in the project level, right? So a value-add deal can mean anything from buying a project and just changing out the windows or changing out the property management. That could be seen as value-add. Obviously, that's very light value-add and hardly any at all, but it is still under that technical term value add, where value add can also mean ground up development, which I would probably say is very heavy value add. To give people a, a rough rule of thumb, I call you know light value add anywhere from $1,000 to $4,000 per unit. And that'll probably get you enough to get you some new flooring, new appliances, paint job. So obviously that's on an average per unit basis, but that's a general rule of thumb. 
that might even go up to as high as five to ten thousand dollars per unit in higher price areas like California, Arizona. Now you're getting into more medium value add. I would say that's more like ten to twenty thousand dollars per unit, and then heavy value add where you're you might be breaking down walls, some heavy exterior improvements that would might be in the thirty thousand dollar plus range. And in those would be the projects that I would really be saying, hey, if you have a class B asset, you're probably turning it into a class A but doing that heavy value add. I don't really buy the story of if you're doing light value add, $5,000 per unit, you're not changing a C plus asset into a B. That's just not happening. That's just marketing fluff. Why invest in real estate syndications? First, like I said, the biggest one, diversification. I think that's the biggest thing. You're giving up control when you're a passive LP partner. But for investors who've bought rental properties, especially like remotely where you're an out-of-state landlord and you're playing on that mom and pa level where the property managers think you're just some unsophisticated remote landlord and they abuse you and all these third-party repairs, it is a big step up in terms of at least now you're swimming and aligned with the general partner operator. Right. Of course, every deal is structured a little bit differently on the splits and stuff like that. But for the most part, the general partners have a skin in the game. They have a line interest to make you money because that's when they make money. And encompassing everything is they want to make you happy as LP partner so that you come back for more. Right. And tell all your friends about it. And as a syndicator growing a, a business, referrals and word of mouth is the best way to grow your business. And that's probably why I don't understand why a syndicator will use a crowdfunding website because the crowdfunding website will shelter and hide the investors from the the operator. Therefore, the operator doesn't really get to pull those investors long-term and have repeat custom customers. The customers will just go back to the crowdfunding website, whoever pays them the most to put them on the crowdfunding website. But that's a big thing. And, and sure, you have people, unscrupulous people out there, people who are on, but generally speaking, if you find an operating group that is doing what they say they're going to do, trying their best and want to create a sustainable business, and, and that's just no different than any of your business, it means doing a good job, making people happy. So you come back and tell all your friends, you're getting professional property management. So there's on two levels, you have it on the asset management level on the GP team, we have uh, we hire professionals on our side to who've had decade plus years of experience in the trenches as property managers to interact with the regional and the property management on site so that the regional manager and the property manager on site that falls under the third party property management house and these are under commercial property property managers so very different than your residential property managers who are a lot more mom and pa, you know, the commercial property managers are a lot more professional. They are a lot more numbers based. They have systems. They're also at the advantage of all the units being at one place, like 100, 300 units. So now they can get a lot more granular. Then we can hold them to different metrics in terms of occupancy collections. Whereas again, if you've been a landlord before, you're pretty powerless when you're interacting with your property manager because a lot of the incentives and the payout on how they get paid is disaligned with you as the landlord, where if you have an eviction or a tenant move out, now you have to pay them more to lease it up. Not the case in our commercial management world. And then as passive investors and syndications, 
number three here, obviously, is passive income and reduced risk. So that's a, it, that's pretty much, I think, one of the big things. You don't have that legal liability that you have when you're the direct owner because you're not a managing member. You're no different than any shareholder in a large stock. And then what I think is really cool and what a lot of brokers have told us in the past is when they understand our investment group and we get to know each other, they're like, wow, this is cool. Because before, previously, investors that get access to these large apartments, these high quality commercial assets are just these big institutional faceless companies. These are the guys, the big REITs, the big companies that invest all of our lazy retirement money. And then everybody takes their cut in the, as the middleman. But now what we're able to do is get a seat at the table and get direct access to these properties. And I think that's why investors come along on these pro- these properties because the fee structure is a lot fairer, right? There's a lot less middleman when you're investing directly with the operator sponsor. What we do is that we're a big disruptor in the industry. And we just we come in and we get a seat at the table, get access to buy the same deals that the commercial institutional guys and lastly here, I think I mentioned it, but being passive allows you guys to spend more time on your portfolio level creation as opposed to being in the weeds in the operation of each individual asset. It allows you to spend most of your time on curating your asset allocation mix. Maybe you have 50% of alternative investments, 20% in life insurance, and the other 30% is what you keep in your 401k. Where do you get these ideas from? Now you have to go and network with other purely passive accredited investors. And that's why we have the family office Ohana Mastermind Group, right? The FOOM, because there's really no other group out there like it. There's some internet forms, of course, but who's really out there from what I see is just people hiding under fake usernames, giving fake reviews on behalf of the company that they work for potential higher returns. The returns are great, right? Don't get me wrong. I think that the whole part of simple passive cash flow and what you'll see in the wealth elevator is this concept of three big strategies working in conjunction. And mainly it's the first two. So you first invest in alternative investments to get yeah better returns, right? Not going to lie. Now you're getting passive losses from the real estate and now using those passive losses to bring over to your taxes. And now we're really rolling. Most of our clients in our family office group who are making over $400,000, $500,000, they're able to pull their income that way down and cut their tax bill in half in the first year. Now you're talking like for somebody saving, making that much money and saving a quarter or half of their paycheck to taxes, that's like investing in a deal or two and having it go full cycle, doubling their money in instantly. So that allows them to put more money into the investing machine and more deals. And then they get more passive losses that way. And then it has them more money to do the third strategy, which is the accredited investor banking. If you guys want to learn more about that, check out the free e-course that we have in the members portal. But that accredited investor banking, I would say it only makes sense if you've got a net worth million dollars or greater to start that. But it doesn't move the needle as much as those first two, right? Especially if you're a high income earner on the tax side. But number nine here, you know, it really matters that you build relationships with other purely passive investors. Because I was here in 2016 when I was transitioning from my single family home portfolio into these types of investments. You go around on the internet, and especially after 2020, right? It seems like everybody has a podcast these days and there's like a social media influencer. It's really hard to determine who's legit out there. And I had this problem myself. Like I stepped on a few landmines myself. I would say, my first 15 deals, there were like three landmines I stepped on. So that's why I always say, 
if you're going to invest half a million dollars, $500,000, one of those might be with a shyster or somebody who's unproven that's just played the fake it to they make it game. And therefore, it makes sense to join the family office group to save your 100 grand out of 500 and to be a bit of insurance there. But moving on, you leverage the experience of your operator sponsors to navigate you through the tough times and to make all the, the macro decisions. Do we sell? Do we keep going? And all the micro decisions. And you leverage the team that they have. And you're also leveraging their deal their ability to get deals. So a lot of this business is predicated on your ability to get opportunities. And this is the hardest part. I think a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of educational groups out there teaching these younger guys how to be general partners and sponsors. But And it's a complete ripoff, in my opinion, because people pay like $50,000. They tell these poor guys the same thing. Go out there, talk to brokers, because in the commercial real estate world, brokers control deals, right? Unless you're buying some piece of junk that's 60% occupied or less, which we don't buy, these yellow letters or going direct to seller isn't going to work in the commercial world when you're buying 150 unit, 100 unit plus. So these brokers control the real estate market. And when these brokers control the real estate market, look at it from the broker's end. The broker is looking for somebody who can close the deal so that they can get their paycheck for their own family, for the commission check. So... If you're a newer operator, you're not going to get any deals thrown your way. It could be maybe a couple of years if you're still around. And that's why I, from my viewpoint, I only see about 1% of the people paying these few exorbitant education prices ever getting to success. And I think that's the biggest part. And we got lucky with this. That was where some of my early partnerships got me in the door with getting deal flow and building those relationships with the brokers. Because again, if you haven't closed multiple 100, 200 unit deals, you're not going to get anything thrown your way. In fact, you're just going to get the garbage that is probably put on a loop net thrown to you. With due diligence, we'll hire outside third-party professionals to come and do a full due diligence report. And I think people are familiar with inspection reports when you buy your single family home. But I would say just it goes well beyond that. It definitely gives construction scopes, cost estimates, and then it goes like really into depth in these reports. And we don't claim to be handyman or building industry experts. Just like what the, we do, that we do the same practices that the big institutional players will do here, and we'll hire a professional third party firm to come in and give that full markup and, and report. So typical returns in any real estate syndication or any venture capital deal for that matter, you can get paid out many different ways. Cash flow, uh, the appreciation which builds up over time. Typically in real estate deals, it takes a few years to value add the, the process, whether that's building something from scratch, that'll take a couple of years or flushing through all the tenants naturally as they naturally come up for renewals. That may take three years. And then now you see why we always say we put out a, a timeline of five years just to put in some extra years for fluff to be conservative. But that appreciation is going to come at the end. I always use the analogy of putting a bread in the oven. You got to wait so the thing is done baking. There might be some cash flow along the way, but it's pretty small potatoes, especially in a value-add project. I would probably say at least two-thirds of the returns is going to come at the end from you waiting. And that's part of that equity buildup. And part of that comes from, I think people think of like, when you think of equity buildup, they think of you paying down your mortgage and that's happening, right? For sure. Right? You're having that pay down of principal, but 
when you're getting into force appreciation, the value that you're creating or the money that you're making through the value add is going to be a lot, lot stronger than any type of pay down in terms of your amortization and just paying down your mortgage. We're in the business of slow flips, if you think about it, where paying down your mortgage isn't, it's a part of it, but it's a very small, minimal part of how we're making money. And then the last thing here, some projects will have preferred returns. So what preferred returns are, it's preferred or preferential treatment of when those returns are paid back to certain investors. It sounds really good. There can be a little misleading and it it can hurt some people. Maybe I'll give an example here at the end. Preferred returns, I think some investors look at it as that de-risks my investment. At least I know I'm getting, say, 5% back first before the general partner is being paid. And therefore, if there's less money to go around, then that makes me feel a little bit better. And and certainly makes me feel better that I'm getting fed first before the general partner speaks, because if the general partner wants to eat, they'll certainly create enough food for me to eat and pay myself first. Some investors, minority of investors look for preferred returns. I personally don't. I just go off of splits because sometimes, most times when you have preferred rate of returns in there, the general partner, they're creating the split scheme to recruit that in the back end. So you might have some kind of waterfall where you'll have a 5% preferred rate of return. And then when investors get X, maybe they've got their principal back, maybe it's a, a 70-30 split up to that point. But then once the investors get their 100% of their capital back, maybe it splits to a 50-50. And I would probably say most of the returns are made after that. So the GP is really going to make out when the deal gets knocked out of the park like that. And the LPs are a little bit less in the code on that a little bit. So that would be an example of a split where LPs are paid first and then sandbagged as it goes along. I personally, as a passive investor, I always like the really simple straight split, like a 70-30 from the beginning. Even if not a lot of money is made, it's 70-30 and all the way straight to the end, 70-30, so that if a deal is knocked out of the park, everybody kind of wins evenly. Right. I think that's the easiest, the transparent, the most fair. And I also think where like the waterfalls where you have different hurdles, I think that's a lot of misleading. And a lot of times it favors a general partnership. Let's face this, right? They're the smartest people in the room and they're creating the splits on what is beneficial to them at the end. One dark side of preferred rate returns is seeing a deal where the project got stalled and the preferred rate returns was really high and it just kept accumulating and it got to a point three years down the line where the general partner had to pay passive investors 30 something percent first. And for the general's perspective, and of course, this is not fiduciary, right? The general partner is just thinking out loud for himself thinking, hey, man, I'm never going to get paid here, right? I'm working for free. That can devise squirrely behavior. And that's why a straight split is just, I think it just, it removes a lot of that squirrely behavior that could come about. I'll get to questions here at the end, unless it kind of pertains to the the slides here. There's usually about a few fees that to look out for, acquisition fee, asset management fee, distribution or exit fee that are paid to sponsors. And whatever you look at their projected returns, it, it usually is inclusive of all those fees, which you look for the fees, but it's at the end of the day, I think what most sophisticated investors do is they just look at like, what is the projected returns that this operator is signing up for? And sure, things could change and they are projected returns, but all things being even and not knowing what is used underneath the surface 
in terms of underwriting and assumptions. When I go into a deal and they're saying I'm going to get X amount, can't legally hold them to it, of course, but that's that loose gentleman's handshake assumption that when I go into a deal, this is what I expect to get. And I'm going to base my future participation in their deals with that in the future. And if part of that is based on the underwriting assumptions, and that's where it's really getting more technical. And I would, what I would suggest is people going into that third chapter of the syndication e-course number section. It's really going into what I think are like the three big things to check on these deals, which is the what is the reversion cap rate used? What is the full occupancy that is assumed? And then what is the annual escalator that is being used on the project? Most times you want to see any a 2% rental increase escalator to account for inflation. Sometimes you'll see 3%. 4%, 5%. And to me, that's really aggressive, in my opinion. And I would be very careful um, going into deals like that. But these are like one of the three things that I think past investors need to spot check. It may not be in the pitch deck. So you may not be able to ascertain what it is. But certainly, I think is a fair due diligence question. But it, you need to understand these concepts. Because I think most times passive investors, they just look at the pretty pictures, which is not the story, obviously, what's going on with the project. But I think if you have a, a strong passive investor network, I think a lot of this goes out the window. And I think that's what happens when people go through our syndication e-course. Once they go through it, you more than most accredited investors out there, what's missing is the purely passive investor piece. Of course, what this does is now it gets you up to a level where you're not asking silly questions of other colleagues and just burning those relationships early of what's the pref? What's a good split? Those are all like the basic questions people ask. And I'll say, who cares what the split is? If the deal is poorly underwritten and you're working with bozos who've only done four or five deals under a billion dollars of assets under ownership, who cares what the splits are? Heck, take 99% of the returns and give the general partner 1%. Who cares? Your money's not really safe and you're probably not going to get your returns unless you get lucky. And I would also argue there that if you're only going to give the general partner 1%, what incentive do they have to work on your behalf to work your money, right? And that's what for operators and passive investors, there's a fair amount that general partners should take to give a rip about your investment and having it work. Obviously, they're typically the gender partners, or at least we do. We're the ones signing on the debt as the loan guarantors. You, you know, sometimes you need the carrot instead of the, the stick, right? The stick is if the deal doesn't perform, the general partners, the key principals have to pay the remaining due and have to answer to the bank. But And even if there's no upside there for the general partners. But this is where I think it, it, I always see these like silly internet forums where Past investors are like talking all day about splits and fees. But it, again, it's really about how the deal is underwritten and the track record of the other, of the operating group. And maybe this is a good time to understand you have three kind of three different types of operators. You have institutional operators. These are the guys who've done maybe over four or five billion dollars assets under ownership. They are reliable, but their fees and splits are in such a way where you're not going to double your money in five years. You're probably going to maybe double your money in 10 years. And plus the minimum investments with institutional operators are going to be maybe half a million to a million dollars plus. A lot of retail investors just don't have that type of money to plump down on that unless your net worth is over several million dollars. 
But even at that, if you're going by that 5%, 10% rule, that's that probably exceeds that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have newer operators that are under $1 billion of assets. And here's the hard part. It's really hard to determine who's like under that newbie, fake it to you, make it level, and who's the institutional players, unless you find other passive investors. And the, in, the newer guys, they're desperate enough to take five grand, 10 grand, 25 grand for minimum investment, but you don't want to invest with them. So it's hard to determine. And this is why a, a passive investor network is so important. And I think some people, what they'll do is they'll go on our Facebook group, but the Facebook group guys are just the cheapos who didn't want to pay for anything. So good luck. You pay for what you get a lot of times. We don't really actively manage that group anymore, just there, but we focus more on the family office group, the hundred people within that group who pay to play. And at the end of the day, that those are the serious people, right? And if you're putting in 50 grand, 100 grand in deals, I would say that you need to be start being serious about this type of stuff because there's a lot of operators that are just really good at marketing and it's really hard to determine who's legit. I tell my guys, like, I think you need to look out for operators who are not really starting out, but at least a billion dollars of assets under ownership and ride their wave of success because eventually they'll get to an institutional level. I've seen it just in my investing career that, yeah, maybe at one time you wanted to invest with them, but you wouldn't want now because they've moved on. They're institutional at this point, and you're not going to get the return splits and fees that you're looking for to be able to successfully get your net worth to where you need to be. And that's why this world is dynamic. And I, I think it's very similar to if you come in from the turnkey rental world, Right. Everybody talks about the same two turnkey providers. I'm not going to say who they are, but they overcharge their investors like 10, 20 grand per property. And a lot of times they'll just white label the same properties from another firm and just put it in there and sell it at that pumped up price. Yet, if you go to all the free Facebook forms and internet forms out there, they're all talking about these same two firms that just pump up the price on everybody. And that's why you need to get with real investors instead of people just skip the surface in terms of networking on the free platforms or even these cheaper platforms for that matter. And that's why I always say build relationships with people, right? Don't just go on the surface level and how's it going? What are you drinking? And who, who's your operators? Who's your CPA, right? That's our more sophisticated investors in our family office group are tipped off to that kind of behavior already as somebody who's not really a giving kind of person, more of a quid pro quo type of individual. And that's just not a good way to start relationships off. Get to know people and really try and find ways to add value. And yeah, the operators and deals that will eventually come through on the third or fourth meeting, but be cool to that. Get to know people because once you put all this all into motion, you deploy half a million, million dollars plus, it goes full cycle. You quit your day job. These are the people you're going to be hanging out with. And I think that's something I've learned is relationships are the currency of the wealthy. I, I get it. Until you're to that point, you're, you're fighting tooth and nail to find the information and to get the goods. But you guys are almost there. It's not like you guys are broke. You, you, know, you guys are all accredited investors. You're almost there. Act like it. Focus more on Endgame, which is quality relationships with the right people. So I digress a little bit, but a lot of this, as you can see, is based off of meeting people. That's what we're trying to build this bridge to, because that's where the stuff really comes alive. Number seven here, tax benefits. When you're going into equity deals, you're an equity partner. And as an equity partner, you have a share of the profits. 
and the losses, right? And the losses is what we want, as especially going into real estate projects where oftentimes a cost segregation can be performed and you can get the aggressive depreciation to fall in your lap and the bonus depreciation, which bonus depreciation has become a little bit of a buzzword. It's not all their depreciation. It's just a minority portion of it. So don't get super excited about it. But overall, projects, even without cost segregations being done or being more aggressively written off and comes on your guys' personal levels, and you can use that as you see fit to get passive losses and use that to offset other passive income. Or if you want to implement real estate professional status, now that's a way to, we've been driving investors' AGIs from like 600 down to 500 pretty easily. We have a, I have a different video on that. If you guys are interested in that, please send team at simplepassacashel.com an email requesting that video specifically. It goes into a lot more detail. Maybe we will take a little bit of questions now. So first question, if your net worth is one to one and a half million, then do you still recommend 5% diversification of portfolio for each syndication deals? Also for someone who is starting out in syndication, how do you recommend investing in syndication deals? So I'm actually writing about this in my book, The Wealth Elevator. There's a section on this. I'm not telling you guys what to do, right? I'll tell you what I see a lot from 800 investors that have jumped in to these projects with us. Normally what I see on average is like people will deploy 10 to 20% of their net worth into alternative investments such as these. And they'll that'll be the proof of concept stage to try it out and see what happens phase. And that's could be anywhere from 10 to 20% on a, a million and a half, could be $150,000, could be $300,000. So that might be 50, 100 grads spread around on a couple of deals or five deals, right? And this is all in the first two to five years. So again, 10 to 20% of your net worth in projects in that first two to five years. And then what I think investors are doing, they're waiting because these investments, they take a while. They go through a value add stage, doesn't look pretty in the beginning because that's the whole point. You're going into value add. And then when it comes out the end, and we've had some exits happen pretty quickly, but we, that's why I always say like the five year, the five years is have a, a good conservative number, but in two to five years, eventually in investors, they get proof of concept and they're like, yeah, this stuff works. Why am I doing any of that traditional investment stuff? And then that's when they take it up to 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60% at that point. That's what I call the second push. So as investors, again, I think that's like a good starters. We have people in our family office, Mastermind, where they get access to the referrals, the network, they get a lot more confident and they even get their family involved, right? If you have a skeptic spouse, their family gets involved with this type of stuff. And then now what you're having is them. What I see is instead of 10 to 20%, they may be doing 30 to 60% of their net worth in the first two to five years. And I've seen as people like even deploy like a million dollars in the first nine months out of there. And they don't have that huge of a net worth per se. They just feel confident. And some of those people, now they're coming full cycle with that stuff. And they're super lucky that they ran out there and did it. Most of our investors are pretty prudent people. I would say 99% of our investors are pretty prudent people. That's why they're good savers. That's why they found our community and they're not going to go jump out the window, which is why that kind of conservative 10 to 20% is what people normally deploy out there for their first go around. Of course, 
I would probably argue that you're wasting your time doing that. You're wasting literally five years of your life getting to where you should be five years quicker. But that's where each individual here needs to weigh their own risk reward situation. At the end of the day, you're working with people. And that's where I think it's for the most part, when you're working with workforce, housing, real estate, hard assets, the, the risk really isn't in the investments. It's more on the counterparty risk. Is my a fake it to the make it operator or a shyster and going to steal my money? I think that's the biggest worry that I would worry about, or at least where I got burned in my past of doing. And that's why I put so much emphasis on meeting and surrounding yourself with the right people. Uh, but yeah, to go back and answer your question, yeah, in, when you're in the beginning phases, and especially when deal flow is slow as it is now, you may have to bend on that 5% rule. If you're investing in funds where there's already built-in diversification for you, yeah, you might, you're probably going to want to bend that rule to go more 10% plus. But these are guidelines. There is no rules here. There's no rules in terms of a perfect asset allocation mix that to have. Those rules got went out the window. And this is where you have to interact with real accredited investors and the Really, the place you're only going to do that is in the family office group or come out and test drive one of our invests. We allow you guys to come to one. Not for free. I had people ask, oh, Lane said you could test drive an event for free. No, you got to pay, guys. Are you serious? Like you Meet other real passive investors and get in here and build these relationships and get engrossed into these alternative investment portfolios because it's nothing you've seen out anything else out, out there like it. I'm off mute if you want. Oh yeah, hey Lane. Yeah, hey. absolutely. It all makes sense. And the when you mentioned the five percent diversification, I didn't know what perspective you were mentioning that as far as net worth goes, because that's where pertaining to myself, that's where I was at. And I was like, for me to get five percent diversification, it's I probably have to get into twenty deals, and then to do that. So I I didn't know because. How, how Better get is. started, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, so th- I, that's what I did is I truly believed in everything you guys did and your track record and, and all that. And I went in at 60%. And that's why my piggyback to that question was with the economy that is today and with the interest rate that it is we're at today and with commercial real estate getting a hit. I, I wanted to know like how what your perspective was if I did jump in in 2022, last year. And while I feel very confident with obviously the operators like yourself and all the deals that I'm in, it's just how should I look at it as, should I just maintain my five-year three and know that on your weekly calls, you mentioned that you think that interest rates will come down and multifamily deals will pick up. But the deals that I'm in now, should I just maintain that it's going to be it's still, we're still on the same trajectory that, that was mentioned already in the offering. For the most part, that's why we, we take a like more stoic approach, even on individual deals that we'll get into it. We'll put out a deal and then something will change in the economy or like interest rates will go up half a quarter point. People are like, has things changed? No, this guys, this is a long-term project, right? This is exactly why we go into these types of projects because it's not based on what's really happening from like a month to month type of thing. We know that on most of those value add projects, we can be out in a few years or even less. But if any type of black swan event happens, like I would probably call what's happened the last couple of years, a black swan event where interest rates get jacked up the quickest in history. 
as a thing where, yeah, that's exactly why you see us saying five years all the times. And sometimes it could be more, right? But all in all, number one, you don't really have control over part of that. And it's it's at least safe, right? It's just holding out there. But yeah, you've seen me build upon like the 5% thing. Again, these are not rules, right? They're guidelines. That's an older idea I had a while ago. And then the 10 to 20% rule. And part of that is real estate, commercial real estate took a hit like a year ago. Like evaluations came down 10, 20%. So now's the perfect time to get involved in reality. Uh, it's not staring you in the face. It is right now. It's funny because... I've had a lot of discussions with with my investors spanning from some people I haven't seen in like years. I don't know if you're like a wine fan, but it's like vintages of wine. The people, a lot of those guys would go into these like 2010, 20, 21 deals. And some of those guys are blissfully unaware of anything that's happening in this economy, right? The people who got a little like, hurt were the people who are went into the 20 late 21 22 vintage they'll be fine for the most part just got to get over the hump and again like you said that's where that five-year time horizon comes in but as i look at like all right you have some people in different situations what if a, a gentleman like yourself bridged all that and just diversified over a long period of time the longer you you make that bridge the safer you are and what I mean specifically as a bridge is bridging yourself under the troughs in the economy and creating this diversified portfolio that spends multiple years, not three years, more like four, five, six, seven years, and then you're fine. And some of those investors in those 22 vintage, they're fine because they have other projects. And that's exactly an example of talking about of how you're creating safety for yourself by diversification and not only deals, but vintages too, from that perspective. I first learned about syndication last year, and I pretty much jumped all, jumped all in head first, just because everything I saw and read about just sounded like just the best way to invest. Have you ever, did you start off with single family home rentals? and type of Oh, stuff? yeah, I, okay. I, I did single family. And okay. number one, I've just never been a very good real estate investor until I learned about syndications. And I feel like if you're not a good real estate investor, then syndications and leaving the decision making to and the deal making to the general operators or the GPs is 100% where I never put, connected the dots just because I never knew about syndications. And when I jumped in last year with give, like I said, with given the current economy that it is today, and I just started doubt started creeping in. Oh. Did I miss the boat on it? Did I jump in a little too late? And that's where where the doubt started creeping in. And then I had to put it on back into perspective and be like, okay, the operators are doing fine. The operators are experienced. I trust in the operators and I trust in the deals. So that's, and I just looked at the three to five year horizon. And yeah, it's just the, the fact that I jumped in 2022. I, if that hurts me as an investor or if that, if I should just main, just keep on maintaining the business plan, if you will. 
Yeah. Maybe if I can provide some kind of viewpoint here, because you're already in it, right? Just like me, I'm in it too, right? We're in it together. Yeah. Um, I think of it like like wine, right? Like if you have, to, say, 2022, you had a lot of wildfires and it's a lot of smoky wine and a bunch of junk that you have to turn into rosé to salvage it. Like it, it, it sucks. You'll, you'll sell the wine. But I think what you need, it, just to distance yourself from these syndication deals, right? To provide a little space, right? To look at the situation. If you are the wine grower, right, what do you do at this point? But you don't sulk and you don't, you move over, you move forward and you just keep making another wine batch, right? And over time, we're, what you're working towards is a diversified pool of multiple years vintages or coming, bringing it back. You're working towards this goal of having a diversified pool of maybe 12 or 24 deals at least spread apart five years. Sure, you had a, a bad year, but you just have to keep growing to that. And then at that point, you see how strong and robust that portfolio is. And that's why I keep thinking like you can have a results outcome mindset. And I think that's how a lot of us are, right? We're based on like results, right? What grade did you get? Did you get an A or more of a, are you more values-based or going through the process, right? Like right now it, you can get a little bit depressed by looking at like you've only been in it for a couple of years, but you've seen what happened the last year. And get a little down on yourself that like, I just got to keep doing what I need to do. Um, For people who haven't jumped in right now, this is the time to do it. This is like you're coming in after a down period. You don't want to come in when the referral is high, like how it was in 21, 22. That's the worst time to be coming in. But I would say just keep working towards that long-term goal of having a diversified portfolio over multiple years, not only deals. Yeah, that makes sense. Another observation that I have, as I said, like 10 to 20% of people will put their net worth into the stuff in the beginning. But most of those people or a good chunk of those people have never owned any real estate or alternative investment. So your situation, you've owned rental properties, you've owned alternate investments, and you had that aha moment of having a rental property, someone paying you a rent check, you paying all your expenses and you're like, wow, I'm a have this money, right? I'm a business owner. There's a chink in the armor of the whole traditional investment world. Most people haven't had that aha moment that you have. And that's why the guys like yourself would probably be more in the 20 to 30% range, in fact, where I'm just clumping all the new people, whether you had rental properties or you're totally brand new to all this stuff in that 10 to 20% world. So that, that kind of makes more sense to me. Because yeah, a lot of investors that I see these days have never owned rental properties. You don't need to, right? If you follow relationships and invest with the right people. A lot of my personal friends have, they never had the aptitude to buy rental properties and manage it from afar, with even with a property manager. But now these syndications unlock the ability for them to get involved in these types of projects without the management headache. But that's another observation that I have too. Your perspective is how any good real estate investors should have. So that's, it's just good listening to what you say as far as diversification and how to get into all these deals and what you should look out for. It's, it all makes sense. And like my heart goes out to those investors who did not diversify and only went to one deal. And that happens to be the one smoky wine field. And part of me feels y'all didn't listen. You didn't diversify in at least a few of these things. Like that's, I think that's part of the game, right? But still, yeah, a lot for myself, especially this past year, a lot of sleepless nights just worrying about those 
particular individuals who did that. Not no fault to them, but that's part of the investing game. That's at least at least part of my thing is like this past years. There are I totally understand. There's real people involved in these types of projects. I it was not too long ago, maybe years ago, that I would watch my bank account go up by three four grand every month slowly. Sometimes backtrack, but then go up seven thousand. But what is fifty thousand dollars? I truly understand that can mean like a year's worth or maybe six months to some of you guys of life energy going to work that you may or may not like or run your business with the ups and downs of that. And all you have to show is 50, 100 grand and you put it into one of these deals. But I think that's the start of the American dream of getting to an end game status of four to five million dollars, getting to a point where you can just cruise at 5% and rest on your laurels and spend ten twenty thousand dollars of passive cash flow every single month that's what we're all working towards there is a path to get there it's not guaranteed but i think it's a journey that i think a lot of myself and you guys have at least you need to recognize that it, it, it is a short journey to get there but once you're there some of the strategies that we'll focus on within our family office group is what do you do after you get to four or five million dollars net worth it may not be going into value add multifamily anymore some other strategies come into play. But if your net worth is under a couple million dollars, you need to get after it. Make no mistake about that. And you have to deploy a large portion of your net worth to get there. It's just math. Do the math. If you're continuing to do what the stock market, traditional investments are supposed to do, 6 to 8% going up and down like a roller coaster, you know what you're going to get in 10, 20 years. There's an alternative path, but you have to arm yourself with the right people and kind of position yourself in the right way and understand eyes wide open the the risk to get there. But next question, uh, Kevin, can you walk through an example of passive losses? So passive, okay, so passive losses you get when you're an equity investor, right? So equity investor, you have your fair share of the upside and the downside of the project. And the downside is like the losses, those losses flow down to you. I have the full webinar on this for you guys. Just shoot us an email. We can send this out to you guys later. Hey, Lane, this hey, Kevin. Hey. I didn't know if it depended on the amount you have invested or whatnot, but just wondering what details come down from the project you have invested and what those examples of losses are in, in order to uh, bring down your taxes. So just a little bit curious about that. I know I'm not too specific on it, but don't have a whole lot of experience. Don't own any real estate properties, hence the question. Yeah, I don't want to say this, but it, it depends, right? What deal you're going into. So num the number one question to ask, is it an equity deal or is it like a debt deal? Because debt deals, you're not going to get any losses off of that. But let's just assume, just to humor the question, it is an equity-based deal. Now you're, you're going to get your fair share of the losses. So you got to work from the top, right? So you bought a... $40 million property, right? Of that, not saying this is what it's probably going to be, but say you're buying it in a kind of low property value kind of area. So the majority of the property value is the property improvement. The property improvement is like the building portion and that that's the part that can be depreciated, not the land portion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so $40 million property, let's just call it 30 million of it is the improvement portion. Now, that can be taken as a loss over multiple years. But the general rule of thumb is if you do a cost seg, only you can take a third of that all in the first year. 
So a third of 30 million is 10 million. So that 10 million in the first year spread apart all the equity investors is what you're going to get on your K-1. Okay. So that can be a, a whole bunch. And there's a whole bunch of factors that determine how strong or how weak that is. Like the more leverage being used, you're going to get a lot higher amount. Um, how much capex there is is that next tier of factors. The age of property, more of a tertiary factor. But biggest thing is leverage, right? Because that kind of determines how much equity stake you have. I want to give you as close to real numbers as possible. So yeah, maybe on that $40 million property, the capital raise on that was like $15 million. And let's just say you put in a hundred grand, right? Now you own 0.6% of that asset. So you would multiply that by $10 million of losses. So you would have gotten $66,000 of losses on your hundred grand. Does that make, did you follow? Yeah, perfect. exactly what I was looking for. So I appreciate the walkthrough. So let's just say there was way less investors and for some reason you got a really high level of the value loan and you could have gotten maybe $130,000 of losses on your hundred grand. But you see how that, what you put in as a percentage of that coming out as losses is detached, if that makes sense. It does. This, this is probably, this goes beyond the scope of past investors for sure. Most guys just are like, yeah, you put in a hundred grand and sometimes they get 20% of that or a hundred percent of that. That's the range. Most guys, it's good enough for government work. And then that's the first year. Then you get some trickle effect in the coming years. Okay. All this doesn't really do you any good until the asset is sold, unless you have real estate professional status and your adjusted gross income is over $360,000. Okay. So I think this is a big mistake passive investors make is they're like, yeah, I, I'm, they tell them, but I'm going on these deals because I get all these passive losses and I'm going to gobble up all these passive losses, stick it in my pocket and just hoard them. And it's super cool. The passive losses just pile up because you don't use the damn things. And it's to that point, stop investing for passive losses. If you're not using it again, who cares is my point. You're not really using it unless your AGI is over 360 and you're doing rep steps. Okay. If it doesn't make sense, let's have a conversation because I think most investors don't understand this concept and they just nod their heads and just sit, they want to look stupid. But let's talk here. <laughs> I think it by understanding it just makes things so much easier. Just it's a lot of things. You're going to get the passive losses, but what good is it for you? I guess driving down your taxes, but you won't be able to do that and let it hit your taxes, like you're saying, until down the road, until the property sold, right? Yeah, but the, here's my big thing is you've likely gone into multiple other deals in the next five years. Surely you would have gotten losses from those deals to offset the first one. And then once you get a point where you have a couple hundred, few hundred thousand dollars of suspended passive losses built up, you don't really need the passive losses. And you can play this game where you could just perpetually build passive losses. Okay. I guess the question is, as far as helping on the tax side of things, is it just the passive losses? angle or are there other ways to help with real estate? Obviously, a lot of it's passing through your taxes and driving it down. So this is the basics here. So there's two types of income, right? There's ordinary income here. This is coming from your W-2 day job, your 1099s. This is bad, right? That's why it's thumbs down here. This is bad because you are getting hit with all these extra taxes and you can't really do anything to offset it. There is just 
will get reveal that secret later on. But on this side, you have passive income. Obviously, it's passive and it's cool. It's happy face. This is coming from your rents or your syndication proceeds there. The cool thing about passive income is you have the passive losses that we, we mentioned earlier that you're getting from it, from the depreciation. And you can use these passive losses to offset passive income. Again, passive losses offset passive income. Passive losses cannot offset passive or uh, ordinary income here, right? And that's where I'm like, in these deals, have passive income, you can use the losses to offset the passive income. But a lot of you guys don't have very much passive income to offset. That's why you're going to get gummed up here and you have too much passive losses and not to be used. And that's why I'm saying having excess is useless to you guys. You can't use passive losses to offset ordinary income. There's a red line here. There's a wall. Unless you have real estate professional status. Then this wall goes away. And then now you can use passive losses to attack your ordinary income down. Now that visualization explained it perfectly. <laughs> now I still appreciate it. So you're probably asking, all right, cool. Yeah, let me drive my ordinary income down to zero, right? That's what any common logical person will think. But then that, remember what I said, if your AGI is not higher than 364 in this example here where my head is at, then if you're below that, you're not paying that much taxes, right? Look at these tax rates on this side. You're not getting killed with taxes. The taxes really go up when you get over this threshold from the 24 to 32% range. That's when it really makes sense to, again, possibly use the passive losses to offset your ordinary income downwards to get you under this threshold. So a lot of people will hear about real estate professional status. That's why I always ask, what's your AGI? If your AGI is less than 364, don't worry about it, guys. You don't pay that much in taxes. But certainly if your AGI is like 500, 600 plus, then yeah, it would make a lot of sense to lower it under this threshold. But you can't do that unless you have real estate profession status and you have a lot of passive losses too. It's like this whole thing where investors come in and part of the reason is they hear real estate's a great way to get tax benefits, passive losses, depreciation. And they're right to a certain point. But then now I'm bringing you back the other way. And it's not that important for certain situations. And here they are. And every situation is different. And this is why it's all personal finance. This is what I enjoy is every individual is different. Everybody's got a different AGI. Everybody's got a different opportunity to get into real estate professional status. Everybody's got different arrangements of what their spouse makes, what they make, who likes their job more, right? And what's the optimal way optimal arrangement to pay the least amount of taxes to make the most amount of money and to be also be happy, right? Stay at home, do nothing. Unfortunately for a lot of you guys who are the breadwinners, you got to go to your job. Sorry, I'm going to, I'm probably going to tell you guys this straight up if that's the case, but what is the optimal arrangement out of this fun industrial engineering optimization project problem? But I don't know. Any other follow-ups or where you fall on this? paradigm i would say hey lane so in regards to bonus depreciation and cost segregation if a cost segregation was done on an asset everything gets depreciated in year one for myself if i couldn't use that depreciation as a passive loss in year one the following year this year it's going to be i can only use 80 percent of that right just because of the the way the bonus no no you're really uh, confused there the whole 80% thing, that's just on the company, on the syndication level. So we're going to uh -huh. push out 
80% or 100%, whatever year it was, of the bonus depreciation out to you regardless. It's going to flow into your bucket regardless. So it's not anything that you have to do or have control over. It's going to come on your K-1 and then it's going to pool as suspended passive losses on your 8582 form here. Okay. If I can't use those losses, then I can still carry it forward to the next year and the following year until yes, I can. And, and carry forward is a good word, but the, the technical term is suspended. It stays suspended for you. Okay. Suspended okay. passive losses. I'm just teaching you the lingo to ask your CPA if you don't want to go rummaging on the 8582 form. Say, hey, Mr. CPA, what is my, how much suspended passive losses do I have from years forward to this year? And then when you say like that, you, that it really comes into play for us as a passive investor is on the sale of the property. So if I do have some of those suspended losses, I can offset the sale of the property, that capital gain. Yeah, that's what most people will be using it for. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But you're looking at it really myopically. You're going to be going into multiple deals, or at least you should, right? So by the time you're that $100,000 investment come full cycle, maybe you've invested half a million dollars elsewhere. You've already pooled quarter million, few hundred thousand dollars plus of suspended passive losses ready to go to offset that capital gain and depreciate recapture in say 2026, 20, That makes the, sense. The important thing is like in not any one year, you try, you, you go to zero and you dip under that. Then you have to take it on the chin and your HEI goes up. And then it, that may not be the bad idea. That's part of the game, especially if you make under $360,000 HEI. Like who cares if you make hundred grand a year? Yeah. Take $200,000 of gain on the chin and have your AGI go up to 300. It's not paying that much taxes in it. And this is where you have to think strategically. And this is not your CPA's job to do this and forecast the future. This is your job to understand this and to make the right educated guess. And it becomes a bit of a game, right? It should be fun, actually. There's no one real way to play this, but you have the best knowledge of your future and what deals you're going into when they're possibly exiting. I think in the beginning, when you're only in like less than 10 deals, you're probably watching this like a hawk because you got nothing better to do. But after a while, you're, you just take it year by year. It's a fun game. See how much, how little to no taxes I can pay. And then if you have to pay some taxes and it goes up, and it got me one out of five years. What's what the hell? Just to give you a vision of the future, that's how it looks like from your guys' perspective. And this is this is great, right? Just you guys understanding capital gain coming back on the full cycles and then the depreciation recapture. You guys probably know more than most people out there, even some CPAs, in fact. But now we have to layer on top of this, like the holistic portfolio strategy, right? You're going into multiple deals, getting passive losses that way to offset the deal in 2027 that exits or 29, who knows, right? We don't know. And you're getting this kind of cushion level of passive losses. I would probably say a couple hundred thousand dollars would be good. That way in any one year, you don't really drop below that. And then, but the magical thing happens is in the more and more you invest, you're going to start to realize you just have so much of these suspended passive losses. And I write about this in my book where I went to an informal mentor of mine. This guy actually invests with me. And I was like, hey, man, have you ever, how much suspended passive losses do you have? And then he's like, I have a million plus of those things. <laughs> I'm like, dude, have you paid taxes in a while? Like, yeah, man, I, I don't know the last time I paid taxes and I don't know when I will. Maybe I'll just die. But And 
that's where you guys are working your way towards, where you just have this huge reservoir of passive losses and you really don't really ever pay taxes on it. You'll pay taxes on it eventually if you rewind your portfolio and you get all alternative investments and you get off of this, what we call the golden hamster wheel here, where you're continuing to grow your investments, go into more and more deals, getting more depreciation and losses. But until you get off of that wheel, which you may not want to, some investors may choose to be like, hey, this is how I got here. Golden State Warriors got the 20 point lead by shooting threes. Once they get up, they're not going to change their strategy. Just like yourself, I got here by investing in good value add deals and I grew my net worth. Even if my net worth is 5 million, 10 million, not going to change my strategy. I'm going to keep it rolling. Some investors may opt to, and this, this is why. When you get around other investors on this level, you can have these types of conversations. How are you backtracking your portfolio? And then how are you going and you're mitigating these taxes on the tight trading out of alternative investments? But that doesn't come until you're 5 mil net worth or plus. Go to 82 form, see how much you got. So when you mentioned bonus depreciation, that's on the operator side, right? The business side. Yes. Okay. So big misnomer here, like bonus depreciation guys is like only a small portion of the, all the depreciation. Bonus depreciation is just a silly marketing thing. Syndicators will tell you guys to make you feel like, oh, wow, I got to get that. I want bonus. <laughs> I, I fell for that trap. Yeah. And I, I use it sometimes. I know all the tricks, of course, but you get pretty damn good, strong um, losses anyway, just by the normal aggressive depreciation, even without a cost seg too. So I, I don't know exactly. The bonus portion is just an add-on. I don't know if I have a good slide on this to explain, but if you go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash costseg, there are like some screenshot of like old cost segregation studies that we've done. And you can get a sense of what portion the bonus is. And what I've ascertained over the years is that bonus portion is really a small minority portion of it. So if you're thinking that small minority portion is going down 20% every year, it really isn't a huge big thing at the end of the day. So don't fall for the marketing trick of scarcity saying that bonus depreciation is going away. Let it go away. That's only a portion of it. You're still getting way more than you ever use, especially if you're not doing rep status and not burning it all up. Yeah, that makes sense. I totally got it confused with something that personally I could take advantage of. And I needed to look at it like the way you explained it, which was that it's that cost segregation, the depreciation, it's passed on to the entire entire asset. And my passive losses are whatever my percentage in the in the asset, in the investment. Here's that video. It's called depreciation recapture. You guys can check it in the YouTube channel. But it's also on this page, simplepassivecashflow.com slash costseg, about a quarter of the page down. But I would check out this video. It went over what we did a lot more detailed and with better images. But to answer your bonus depreciation question, this is the best way I'm going to explain it. So what a costseg does, it now breaks up all your losses based on or your losses over your components of the property in the different categories. 27 and a half year, the 15, the seven, the five. What it does, what bonus does, and you're gonna have to ask the CPA really, but what, what I see it is it allows you to take certain of these like right away. But it, if you're noticing, it's not like the majority of it, like the seven year one, what is that? That's like a drop in the bucket of the, that's like 1% of all the losses. The five year is like 18, 8% of the 15, but you're already aggressively writing this stuff anyway, here on a shorter 10 year schedule right here. 
So the bonuses, I believe it just means like certain categories, like the five year and the seven year, you can take that right away. But it's not the lion's share is what I'm saying. Yeah. Not giving you any tax advice here, but I'm just telling you from the trenches what I see. Yeah, like I look at the K-1s from 20 to 2022, and I don't really see too much of a difference, guys, in terms of losses. What else do you guys have? Maybe we got time for one more. On a, on a syndication deal, what kind of things would you look out for if it's development versus a value-add multifamily? Like on the offering, they would say, here's the projected numbers. And then on a value-add, are you expected to get the same kind of returns on a development deal versus a value-add deal? Would you run the other way if you saw a value-add deal that exceeded a, a development deal in terms of appreciation or in terms of projected numbers? It all depends on how good your deal flow is and how daisy-chain that deal is around. Maybe if I explain it, like if you buy a mango from, mango is a commodity, you buy a mango from Whole Foods, there's a certain price you pay there versus Safeway versus like the down to earth, super expensive health food store, right? It's the same product for the most part and the price that you should get. So similarly, how I'm connecting that with this stuff is like a value add deal. Like in my opinion, if it's with a good operator and it's a legit deal, I know I should probably be maybe doubling my money every few years, every three to four years, something like that. A value add deal, there's just not as much value add to be had. And therefore, that's why the returns aren't as strong where maybe you're doubling your money every five years or six years. So that I already know is like the price of the mango, right? But what's hard is like you're selling that mango or that particular deal, whether it's a development or value add in different marketplaces to different customers. So you need to differentiate whether you're in Whole Foods or Safeway or the farmer's market. Similarly, here in this real estate world, you don't know if you're looking at a deal from like a sucker list of like a daisy chain deal that's been pushed out there by a gazillion syndicator who can't raise the money for it. And now there's all these middlemen and now they're showing like a development deal doubling your money in six to 10 years. And you also combine on top of that with who knows what un- they're using for underwriting too. And I always emphasize like the deal being conservatively underwritten and do the sponsors stand behind it at the end of the day? Or are they just lying to you just to get your money in the door, push, and we'll see what happens in five years. Hopefully the real estate market will bail them out. Typically happens, so typically real estate does move up or you just choose not to sell it in the down periods. But that's, I think, where a lot of trust comes into to this. Multifamily value add, I think, the nice thing there is you can look at past performance of the asset. There's p- existing P&Ls, or at least from my perspective as the operator, when I get my hands on those P&Ls, I can see what that asset is performing at, and I can somewhat project what we can do to get it up to a certain level, and then the delta in that value add creation there. Of course, as a passive investor, you're never going to get rent rolls and P&Ls. That's not going to happen. That's not in the scope of a passive investor. So again, you have to put your trust in the operator and sponsor. But with development deals, you don't know. The thing's not even built yet. It's speculative. On the one hand, you do know what comparable products are being sold for today. So it's a little different way of projecting in the future, which may be easier on a surface level, right? Especially if you don't have P&Ls and rent rolls and stuff like that. You can just see what assets sold 
that were in that kind of same vintage submarket and class of property. Yeah, I guess maybe for an LP, that might actually be easier due diligence to do than getting underneath the surface in a technical manner and underwriting. Um, but it's really hard to determine that, especially in like development world, you have a lot of these kind of sucker deals that get put out there, especially when you, you have these artist renderings. A lot of times those deals will be pushed out to unsophisticated investors who just want to invest in a sexy project. And here are some made up random returns, put your money in. It is, reminds me a lot about like venture capital in startups because in startups, you don't really ask what the projected returns because everybody knows it's such a crapshoot anyway. I don't know. Hopefully we don't lose our money is the sentiment in venture capital. And in a way, some of these developments that are put out to unsophisticated investors are on that same spectrum. But if in my confusing rambling answers, you can tell how a bit of all over the place it is. But at least maybe you're aware of it now. Yeah, I, I'm in some of the development deals and I'm just trying to understand where the risk is with all things being equal, like good operator, good land. Is it with the construction management? Is that the risk or the price of material or just some unknown about the land? And I remember last week on your kimono call, you mentioned one lesson learned on a development deal is to get in when it's shovel ready. Then that's probably a better development deal than say the land hasn't even been purchased. Yeah. Development deals. Okay. So I think you, you said a good thing to start off, right? You took all this counterparty risk out of play. Just assuming you're working with good operators, people are going to say what they're going to do. Now you're just looking at the project at a whole, I would probably argue that at this point, certainly for the risk reward, the development is going to have a lot less risks and unknowns at this point. The cons with multifamily is like you have to hold on to the asset for a long period of time and you have to be in the water going up and down with the tides. So the risks are like taxes, insurance, all expenses. And the biggest thing is people, tenants. There's a lot of tenants that live in there and, and that has a lot of unknowns and variables in that. Whereas in a development, you don't really have too much of that. You're not in operation yet. You just have to build the damn thing. And that is where it's no different than any other construction project. But I think that's where there should be comfort in understanding that if you have the right deal, it has enough budget to pay for professionals to do the construction management, the geek squad, the engineers, the engineering firms that push the project through to completion and to mitigate the change orders as they will come about. Change orders are always going to be there. Um, there certainly should be a budget for contingencies like that, and which is a common practice of all construction projects um, and all projects in general. But we've ran into, we did our Chase Creek project. We had lumber go 4X the price on us. That was a big thing. And that's our biggest, um, we just brought in more capital to pay for it. And we'll probably recoup that at the end. If anything, it's just a cash crunch during construction that you'd have to just put in there. But yeah, I, personally, I think the development deals have less risks once you take all the counterparty risks out of it. And then to your point, I don't really like these projects where the land is not purchased. And ideally, you want the land to be pre-developed so that it's, say you're going to build multifamily there. It's already developed, permitted multifamily because that can take a while. And that is really the risk in the projects is the schedule component. You 
run into some issues with permitting, you might be stalled out for six months or maybe even a couple of years. And I think at the top, that's what I mentioned. If you're in a deal with a pref, that pref is ticking and that general partner may not be super incentivized to finish the project. Of course, that's a very rare case, right? But just using that as an example. All right, we'll see you guys next month. And that's the show, guys. Remember, that was a recording of our recent syndication workshops. I do that every third Saturday of the month. And I also hold office hours on the first Saturday of every month. And you guys can get access to these events by joining our club, where the big thing is we want to get to know you guys. And I'm sure you guys want to get to know myself and the team. If you guys haven't yet, book your onboarding call. And again, help us out, spread the word, and tell your friends about us. Bye.